Well, good morning. Good to see you guys. Uh, trying to reel in a fish, okay? Unfortunately, Conrad's boat was on autopilot, and when he, when he fell over, his boat kept going, and so he was unable to get back on board of his boat. And he was left stranded nine miles from the shore. Miraculously, I, I seriously want to fact check this. Like, I'm waiting for somebody to say this is a hoax. Miraculously, he was able to swam, swim his way back to shore, battling 10-foot waves and 25-mile-an-hour wind. And at 4.40 a.m., nearly 16 hours later, he was found on the beach by police. And his boat was later found in Grand Bahama Island with the autopilot still on. Now, Conrad, who was treated at the hospital there in Florida for hypothermia, as you might imagine, said that he was in the water for about 10 to 12 hours, swimming back. And as I read this story, I was, of course, just impressed with this guy's physical ability to be able to swim like that and his endurance to not give up. But I also couldn't help but think how he probably wishes that his boat was not on autopilot and anchored whenever he fell overboard. Now, I share that story because while you and I are not fishermen, or well, you know, maybe we're not, maybe you are, I'm not. While we may not be fishermen, each and every one of us needs an anchor for our own lives. We need something that can hold us and ground us so that when the storms of life come, we're able to stay, we're able to remain firm. Without an anchor, we may let the pressures of work lead us to make compromising decisions and find ourselves in bondage to some sort of addiction. Without an anchor, the throes of raising young children might push us over the edge and we might blurt out words to them that could crush their souls. Without an anchor, we may let some unwanted lot in life, whether that be depression, anxiety, maybe an unwanted uh, stage of singleness or something else that we are battling push us from wondering if life is really worth it to concluding that it's not. Without something holding us firm, keeping us grounded, we are in all kinds of danger, just like this guy was when he fell overboard fishing off of his boat that was not anchored. We need an anchor. And so does the church. We need an anchor as the church. And thankfully, we have one. And this morning, I want to talk about what the church's anchor is. And I also want to talk about how we can be anchored by it, how we can 
make use of what God gives us to anchor ourselves. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians 15, verses 1 through 8. If you have a Bible, turn there to 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 8. If you need need one, there's a blue one there in the back of the pew in front of you. And as we read from this passage today, as we read from 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 8, we will find out what the church's anchor is, and I also believe we'll learn how we can be anchored by it. Before we read, I want to pray for our time together, and then we'll read. Father, what we all know all too well is that storms come in life. We have things that happen, we have difficulties that rise, and we all know that we are pushed to the brink. We all know that we've found ourselves time and time again in places where we are at the end of our rope, where our energy, where our strength is fading, and we need something to cling to in those times. I thank you that you have blessed us with something that is strong and something that is firm. I thank you that you have not left us without an anchor. I pray that as we read this passage today, Lord, that you would give us confidence in you and what you've given to us. I pray that you would use our time to direct our minds towards truth, and I also pray that you would use our time today to to be with us in a special way. We, We invite your spirit here. We ask your spirit to encourage us. Lord, I don't know where everybody in the room is today, but I do know that regardless of what we've dealt with this last week and what we're going to face this next week and this year, we are in desperate need of you, and so we ask you to be with us today. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, let's read, read 1 Corinthians 15. We're going to start in verse 1, and we'll read down to verse 8. It says this, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved. If you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. So Paul begins this chapter. He says, now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preach to you. He says, this is nothing new. This is what you've heard. This is what you've believed. But let me remind you of the gospel. Because what Paul knew is that the Corinthians were prone to drift away from this, prone to to wander away from the gospel, and the same is true for us. Left up to ourselves, we do not stay near the gospel. We We are not prone to grab a hold of it. We need to be reminded of it. We need to know it, and we need to be reminded of it. And then, if you jump down to verse 3, Paul gives, I think, probably the most clear and succinct version of the gospel. It's really the gospel in a nutshell, in really four specific statements. 
And the first one, he says in verse 3, he says, I delivered to you as a first importance what I also received, and this is where he outlines the gospel. He says, first of all, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. So the first piece of the gospel is that Christ died. Jesus is the Christ. He is the Messiah, God's anointed one that was chosen to lay down his life as a sacrifice. And and Paul says that Jesus died for our sins. He didn't die as an example to us. He didn't die to, to, to just, you know, encourage us. He died for our sins. He died in our place, taking the punishment that our rebellion against God deserved. I want to tell you a story that, that I came across that I think really helps us understand and grasp this idea that when Christ died, he died for us. He died for you, he died for me, meaning I deserved that death and he took it for me. You deserved that death and he took it for you. In July 1941, in Auschwitz, Poland, three Jewish prisoners escaped from the infamous concentration camp that was there. As retaliation, the camp commander randomly chose 10 of the prisoners to die of starvation as a deterrent to the rest of them so that they wouldn't attempt to escape. So names were called, and when a Polish Jew, I'm going to botch this name, y'all forgive me, Frondyszek Gasovnicek, heard his name, he cried out, wait, wait, I have a wife and children. And at that exact moment, another man, Maximilian Kolb, who was actually a Franciscan priest, stepped forward and said, I will take his place. I will take his place And he was marched into a cell below the ground with nine others where he managed to live for two weeks, the longest of any of the folks that weren't down there. And this story was chronicled by NBC News a few years ago. And Gasabnicek, by this time, was 82. And he was shown telling this story with just tears streaming down his face. Just couldn't hold them back. Even this many years later. And a, and a camera followed him around his little, little house to a marble monument that was carefully tended with flowers. And the inscription on the monument read this. It said, in memory of Maximilian Kolb, he died in my place. Every day that Gasabnicek has lived since 1941, he lives with the knowledge I live because someone died for me. And every year on August 14th, he travels back to Auschwitz in memory of Kolb. The reality of what Christ has done for us is just as real as what this man did for this guy. I don't know about you, but I think I have a hard time really, really believing, I mean really, really believing, that I deserved the death that Christ died. I feel guilty, I feel shameful, but it's hard to really picture that I was supposed to be on that cross. Because I wasn't there in history on that day like this man was. I don't have a vivid memory of it. But what we do have in the text all throughout the Bible is it explains to us that we deserve death. And explains to us that Christ 
took that death. That his death on the cross was a sacrifice for us, for you, and for me. He didn't just die for some people. He didn't just, you know, it's not that some people are bad enough that they needed a savior. Every one of us is bad enough. Every one of us is corrupt. And every one of us is fallen and sinful. And he died for us in our place. Now, what Paul also is careful to say here is that not only did he die for our sins, but he died in accordance with the scriptures. And that's really important for us to understand. Because what that means is that Christ's death really ultimately wasn't at the hands of these Roman soldiers. It was ultimately a part of God's sovereign plan, a part of God's sovereign will. It was what God had predicted in the Old Testament scriptures and what Christ himself said that he came to do through the Gospels. And so we know that this wasn't some random occurrence that caught God, caught Jesus by surprise. This was part of a predetermined plan, a plan to redeem us. So the first part of the gospel is that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. And then in, the, in verse 4, Paul gives us the second part of the gospel. He says that he was buried, that he was buried. So Christ not only died, he was also buried. And his burial is the proof that he actually died. Because believe it or not, there are some people who really believe that somehow he went through the crucifixion and didn't die. That somehow he was thrust, a, a spear was thrust into his side after he was nailed to the cross and he didn't die. But his burial, which is attested to historically, which is what we see in the Gospels, is that, that Joseph of Arimathea took his body, went and, and asked permission to bury it and prepared it for burial and laid it in a tomb. All of that is proof that he actually died. And so... The second piece of the gospel is that Christ was buried. And then Paul continues in verse, verse 4, giving us the third component. He says that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. Christ was raised, and this changed everything. The scriptures teach us that the resurrection serves as, as a validation that Jesus is who he says he was, that he is the Messiah, that he is the one who was anointed by God to come and lay down his life. And it demonstrates that his sacrificial death pleased the Father and satisfied his wrath, and that is why he raised him back from the dead. So the third piece is that Christ was raised. And then finally, in verse 5, Paul gives us the fourth piece of the gospel. He says, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. So Christ was, died, he was buried, he was raised, and then he appeared to these men. Not in a vision, not as a spirit. This isn't just a ghost that's coming to them. He appeared bodily in his resurrection body. If you go back and read the Gospels, I looked at it this week just because I, I, I'm always intrigued at how they kind of give details to let us know that this was a real bodily resurrection, that this is... Christ back from the grave, not just a spirit. In Matthew 28, in Luke 24, and John 20 and 21, you can go read them for yourself, Jesus lets his disciples touch his body. He lets them feel his scars. And then, in a, in a couple of different uh, of those passages, it actually says that he ate. He actually ate food. 
Because a spirit doesn't do that. A ghost doesn't do that. Somebody with a body does that. And so Christ was actually raised from the dead. He, and his appearance to these men serves as proof of his resurrection. And then in verses 5 through 8, Paul goes on and he tells us that he didn't just appear to Peter. That's who Cephas is. He didn't just appear to Peter and he didn't just appear to the disciples. He also appeared to more than 500 people at the same time then to James, who was Jesus' half-brother, then to all the apostles, including Paul. So in his day, for the, for the first Corinthian, or in, in 1 Corinthians, the church in Corinth, he tells them this, saying, what does he say, to mo- at, at the 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. If you were the original audience reading this letter from Paul, there were people you could go and say, did you really see the risen Christ? And they would say yes. They would say yes. And so historically, there were eyewitnesses to this account that validated it. And so that is the truth of the gospel, that Christ died for our sins, that he was buried, that he was raised, and that he appeared. And this is the core of our faith. This right here is what everything that we believe hangs on. We lose this and we've got no faith. But, be, be, but because this is true, we have a faith that is real, that is life-changing, that endures. In Colossians 2, 6-7, which was the New Testament reading that Julie read for us, it says this, it says, Therefore, as you receive Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. The reason why I wanted to read that verse this morning is because you'll notice there that Paul tells us the faith is what we are established in, is what we are grounded in. And the gospel that we just read is the core of our faith. The gospel is our anchor. The gospel is what holds us fast amidst all of the difficulties that we face in life, amidst all of the fears, doubts, worries, everything that we deal with. The gospel is our anchor. The truth that Christ died, he was buried, he was raised, and he appeared is what holds us secure. We don't have to rest on ourselves. We don't have to try to make things work spiritually. We simply cling to Jesus and what he's done and what God has done for us in him. So the gospel is our foundation. It is our grounding. It is what holds us secure. And the reason why I wanted to talk about this today is this month we're, we're, we're talking about our mission statement and our process. Our mission statement here at Skillman is that we are a community determined to see God's reputation increase both at home and abroad. That's why we're here. We're here that God might receive glory, that he might receive worship here in our city and around the world. And what we believe is that in order to actually be a part of that mission, in order to actually see it come to fruition, there's some things that we have to be committed to. There's a process by which God will lead us to be successful in that mission. And the first part of that process is that we are grounded in the faith. It is that the gospel is our very power. It is our very source. It is, is what gives us everything we need to be able to stay committed to this task. It is what helps us remember who God is 
and who we are in relationship to him, it helps us remember that he has forgiven us, that we are completely accepted and reconciled to him, and from that place, we can turn around and pour our lives out as an act of worship, as an act of thanksgiving to who God is and what he has done. It is what fuels our faithfulness to this mission. So if we're going to see God's reputation increase here at home and abroad, we have to remain grounded in the faith. We have to be anchored by the gospel. But how do we do that? How do we remain anchored by the gospel? That's what I want to talk about the rest of our time today. Jump back up to verse 1 with me. In the first couple verses here, Paul's going to outline for us how the gospel anchors us. He says, now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you. And then he says this. He says, which you receive in which you stand. Which you receive in which you stand. So the gospel is what we stand in. If we're going to be anchored by the gospel, we can't just know the truth of the gospel. We have to stand on it. We have to rely on it and let it be everything that our life is built upon. We can't just accept it as correct truth or something that is, that is factually real. We have to actually appropriate that and do something with it. The gospel is good news, but it doesn't become good news to you or to me until I actually believe it and build my life upon it. So if you want to know beyond a shadow of a doubt that God loves you, you have to stand on the gospel believing that God is good, that Christ died and was buried and rose again and took the debt for your sin, making it possible for you to be reconciled to God, to be loved and accepted by him completely. If we want to be free from the guilt and the shame that we often experience, we have to stand on the gospel trusting that Christ took all of God's wrath, like we just sung about in a couple of different songs, trusting that God emptied his wrath on Jesus on the cross, and by faith in him we're completely forgiven. If we want to see God's reputation increase at home and abroad, we have to stand on the gospel. Look at verse 2. We'll give you, in, this, in this verse, Paul gives us the second way, I believe, that we can be anchored by the gospel. He says this, after saying, the gospel I preach to you, which you received and which you stand, he says, and by which you are being saved. So the gospel not only forgives us of our sin, and Christ's death and resurrection doesn't just take care of our past, it also impacts our present. It is the fuel, the power of changing us. It makes us more like Christ. It is the gospel that we run to that gives us the spiritual power to be different, to change. So if we're going to be anchored by the gospel, it starts by standing on the gospel, and then it moves to trusting Christ to change us by the gospel. Not, not trusting in ourselves, not looking to our own efforts, not looking to what we bring to the table, but believing that our only hope is Christ and what he does in us and through us. Now, for us as a church, as a corporate body of believers... I believe that God is calling us to be more involved in seeing his reputation increase in our city. 
It is something that I've been convinced of since the first day that I came here. And it's something that God continues to churn in my chest. It's like deep down inside of me, I just know beyond a shadow of a doubt that he has great things in store for us in this area. And something I've become more and more convinced of, especially as I read texts like this, but even over time, just as I walk and, and, and seek to be faithful to God, is that if we are ever going to become the kind of church that deeply cares and serves our city to the point that people are coming to Christ and their lives are being changed and God is glorified, if that's going to happen, we can't do that. We can't get there. We can't muscle up this change by white-knuckling our way through it. We don't just decide that we're going to work harder and all of a sudden that's going to be a reality. Jesus has to change us as a church by his gospel. We can't conjure up a love for lost people. Jesus has to give us that love for lost people because he's the one who loves them perfectly. We can't become just all of a sudden more faithful and more excited by just praying harder and and all of a sudden just working our way there. We have to be impacted by who God is and what he's done for us through Christ on the cross. And then that will give us greater gratitude, greater awe of who God is. And from there, we will want others to participate in this beautiful, beautiful worship that we ourselves are caught up in. Then, from the desire of God, wanting God to be known and worshiped, we will love and share the good news with our neighbors, with our city, so that God's reputation increases. Sometimes I feel like, like, maybe I'll just speak personally, sometimes I feel like somebody who is selling a product that I don't use. You ever felt that way in your own relationship with God? You're like, well, I know you're calling me to be faithful and to share, tr- share your love and to share your truth, but sometimes I'm not drinking of that, and so I feel like a fraud walking around trying to pitch a product. It's like, hey, you need to drink Coke, and I'm privately in my car drinking Pepsi. You know, like, I'm convinced that the only way for us to become a church that lives on mission for God is to be completely in awe of who he is, to be completely in love with him and completely full of gratitude for what he's done for us. If we're going to be that kind of church, we have to be anchored by the gospel and the way that we do that is by trusting Christ to change us, not trying to change ourselves. Look back at verse 2 with me, and this is the last point that I have today. So he says, the gospel is what we stand in, and it's by which we are being saved. But then he gives this conditional statement. Listen to this, or look at this. He says, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. His point is that for faith to be real, for faith to be saving faith, that carries us through to the end, brings us safely home, we have to have a faith that endures. Real faith lasts a lifetime. You don't believe for a little while and then abandon that belief if you have real faith. Real faith carries through. It may be tattered, it may be beaten up, 
It may be dangling by a thread, but it's there. It's there. Because ultimately, we're not held fast by our belief. We're held fast by the one we believe in. It's the content of our faith that matters, but we still have to have that faith. And so, if we want to be anchored by the gospel, the last part is we have to hold fast to the hope of the gospel. We can't let our circumstances, we can't let the things that we come up against that smack us in the face, that, try, that, that tempt us to bail and to give up, we can't let those things cause us to let go of the gospel. And so if we're going to weather the storms that come our way this year, individually and as a church, whatever they may be, if we're going to be here, kind of like we talked about last week, if we're going to be here 50 years from now, faithfully worshiping, faithfully teaching and preaching the gospel, faithfully being involved in God's mission for us, we have to hold fast to the hope of the gospel. I like the way the writer of Hebrews puts it in Hebrews 6, 19 and 20. I've actually thought about getting a tattoo, and if I ever get a tattoo, I want to get an anchor based on this verse, but I'm kind of too chicken to get one for a variety of reasons. Not so much that it'll hurt, but I'm afraid that I'll have buyer's remorse and then be like, why did I do this? But listen to this verse. I love this verse. He says, we have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. If you read that, I don't have time to walk through this entire passage, but the concept that he's referring to as this anchor of our soul is the promises of God. The promise that God has said, I will hold you firm, I will bring you safely home, I will come back to get you, I will send my son to bring you where I am. That is our hope, and it is sure and steadfast, and the way that we know it is that right now, this very moment, our Savior, Christ, is seated at God's right hand, interceding for us. His blood has covered us, and he is actively saying every time that we sin, every time that we blow it, every time that we fail, we don't have to make things right because Jesus says, he's mine, she's mine. They're covered in my blood. And the Father sees us through him and accepts Christ's plea for us. What a beautiful truth. So we don't have to worry about what happens in the future. We don't have to worry about our circumstances. We don't have to worry about our mistakes and the things that we're going to do that are bad and the ways we're going to blow it. We can rest secure because we have a high priest who died in our place, was buried, was raised, and appeared and he has torn the veil, bringing us right into God's presence. And we are welcome there. We are sons and daughters because of who he is and what he has done. And nothing can change that. That's what we cling to. The battle of the Christian life, your challenge and my challenge, is not to try to be better. It's to try to believe and to try to get ourselves back to the foot of the cross again and again and again and again and say, I plead the blood. I plead what Christ has done for me. We have hope because of who Jesus is, because he's what, he, what he's done for us, and because he pleads at the right hand of the Father for us. So this is our anchor. The gospel is what will hold us firm. We don't have to hold ourselves firm. We don't have to go out and make it happen. We come back continually, and we plead that Christ is all, and he's our only hope.
We can be anchored by the gospel if we will stand on it, if we will trust Christ to change us by it and hold fast to the hope that we find there. Let's pray. I want to read.